We're continuing our study in the book of Psalms today by looking at Psalm 90. Uh, yesterday, we had a very significant service in the life of our church. We had the memorial service for Debbie Condra, who had been a part of our church since the 80s. She and Ed served in Papua New Guinea uh, for 15 plus years. They uh, became a part of our church family when they returned. They raised their four children, and many for a time here, uh, Debbie was a force to be reckoned with and a big part of our church family. And so, the last number of years, as she's fought Alzheimer's and as Ed has so faithfully stood beside her, it's it's been excruciating to watch. And one of those times when you ask God, "Why and what are you doing?" Uh, by the way, uh, I neglected to say yesterday, Ed expresses his deep appreciation for especially those who stood beside Debbie, who served their family in countless ways. This church has meant so much to them as once again, Grace Bible Church demonstrates the love of Christ and the way it cares for each other. But as, as we prepared the service for yesterday, this psalm uh, fit so perfectly. For many generations, this psalm was read along with 1 Corinthians 15 at the time of burial for Christians. It is a psalm that speaks to the, the greatness and perfection of God and yet the brokenness and, and temporariness, if I may say that, to humans. The reality that our lives are so quick and compared to God, we are so, so inadequate and simple. It is a psalm that is rooted in the first chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 3. It, it, it reflects the, the reality of those first chapters of Genesis from which the worldview of all of Scripture is built. I had a professor in seminary that said that the first 11 chapters in Genesis give the foundation of all of the worldview in Judeo-Christian thought and all of both Old and New Testaments. And we'll see that as we work through the passage. It traditionally has been attributed to Moses, which would make it the oldest psalm in the Psalter, Obviously, many scholars today would, would resist that, but early scholars uniformly accepted Mosaic writing of this, and we will see how beautifully it fits with Moses' work in Genesis as well as his experience with the nation of Israel. This is a, a psalm that is often compared to Isaiah 40 because Isaiah 40 is another incredible passage that, that looks at the monumental greatness of God in comparison to the frailty of humanity, that, that we are so insignificant compared to God. If it were not for His love and commitment to us, we would have no permanence in creation. So this is a psalm that is often quoted. It's referred to in the New Testament, and I think it is a psalm that will encourage many of us in where we are. So please, if you will, turn with me to Psalm 90. In the first two verses, he affirms our security in God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, are you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, 
you are God. These two verses in many ways affirm the truth of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that God is preexistent, that all things come from him, that he is the creator and eternal, all-powerful, and as such is safe. The word for dwelling place could be translated refuge, our safe place. The psalmist says to the God of Israel, you and all of creation represent the one safe place we have, and it is safe because you created all things and because you are all-powerful, Genesis 1 and 2. It, it is that foundational reality of who God is. In the beginning, God. The biblical worldview always, all theology always begins with God because in eternity past He existed and because theologically, philosophically, and in every other way He is the foundation of reality. Things begin with Him. As an aside, one of the great failings of humanity is we so quickly go to a human-centered, human-focused view of reality. We, we buy into the fact that in the beginning, we, as if we are central to all things. The problem with that is we're so broken. When our worldview begins with us, the sad reality is we end up with us. And just as I disappoint myself, and I disappoint you, all of humanity in one sense can be a disappointment. When we place our faith and hope in others, we will always find that, that humans are not an adequate safe place. One of the hard lessons of life is that even if you grow up in a wonderful, loving, safe home, when you leave home, you step out into a world that, that is not safe. That, that friends will fail. That security economically, security in every other way is subject to passing. And, and when, when we faith, place our faith and hope in anything but the sovereign, all-powerful, all-loving God, we, we will find disappointment. It is a reality that human governments our health, uh, the blessings that we've received monetarily and physically, everything that we can place our hope in will be inadequate when compared to the security that only comes in God, who is our safe place and our refuge. Which, which asks the question to each of us, uh, a question that, we, frankly, we should ask on a regular basis, on, on what am I placing my hope for my security? Uh, Tim Keller makes the point that if, if anything is taken away and causes you to panic, then probably you've placed too much hope in that. It may even have become an idol. In other words, there, there is a reality in which that we, our hope should be so firmly established in God and His character, His love, His actions that, that no matter what else happens, we can have security in that because He is our safe place. And in, 
in the course of Scripture, we see examples of men and women who, who have demonstrated what it is to find their security in the Lord alone. And in, in church history, there are men and women who, about whom we read and whom we study because they, they are such examples of people who place their faith and hope for security in God alone. And in our church, there are examples. It is one of my great privileges to have sat with men and women through horribly difficult times and seen while there may be grief and heartache and even a little fear, there is the confidence, the hope in the safe place who is their God. Moses affirms that reality of Genesis 1 through and 2, that the God whom we worship is in his attributes, attributes unlimited in his power and his greatness and in his attributes unlimited in his love and his care. And those two traits are demonstrated throughout Scripture, Isaiah 40, and ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. Our security is in God. So it might surprise you in verses 3 through 12, he turns to from this incredibly positive, encouraging statement about the character of God, he turns to that reality of life that many of us have experienced at times and sometimes for long periods. I've, I've called it discipline by God in verses 3 through 12. In verses 3 through 6, we see the frailty of humanity. Yet you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. A, a, a less than subtle reference to Genesis 3:19 and the curse that is given toward man that to dust he, from dust he was made and to dust he will return. He says here, we are turned back to dust. Interestingly, though, he uses a different word for dust, and that is, that is crushed dust, dust that has become dust by the crushing of action. So here he refers to the fact that at times, by God's sovereign will, he allows us to be crushed into dust. And as he promised and predicted in Genesis 3 that we would return to dust in death. Because we are slept, swept away into dust, we last only for a moment. Compared to us, a thousand years, which seems to us an eternity, as many, many generations, it is just a day to God. It is like a four-hour night watch to Him. A thousand years, because He is eternal and literally beyond space and time, because of that, time is, which means so much to us, is so insignificant to Him. And therefore, in in our brief lives, we sprout up like new grass in the spring, and we burn up like Texas grass in the summer sun. We, we wilt, and we go away. 
We, we only last relatively a moment. We're dry and withered. We're gone. It's interesting how important we can feel about ourselves and how, how much significance we can put in certain individuals' lives as if, as if they have an importance that would impress God. I heard someone, a preacher the other day say uh, about someone, God would be proud to have them as children, and I kind of got a little squeamish. I, I, I don't think any of us ultimately make God proud he had to sacrifice his son to establish relationship with us and yet sometimes we treat some people as if they're so significant and yet the reality is that we will pass. Most of us do not even know our great-grandparents' first names. We may remember our grandparents' first names, but our great-grandparents, unless we're genealogy people, probably not. We don't remember who was mayor in Dallas 25 years ago. We can't recite the presidents of the United States in spite of how significant we think that is. We, we, and then, heavens, the celebrities that People Magazine highlights are here today and gone so 15 minutes ago, right? The reality is that, that we can get so caught up in how important we are as humans and strut around as if we have so much value, and yet in, in reality and in, in the grand scheme of things, we are but a wisp and forgotten. This is the words of Moses who, who experienced it. Many believe that this is set after Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14. You remember that Moses had brought the people out of Egypt. They had gone to Sinai and received the law, and they came up to Canaan, the promised land, and at Kadesh Barnea they sent 12 spies into the land. And the 10 of the 12 spies responded and said, there are giants there. We can't go. Only Caleb and Joshua exclaimed, oh my, we have a God so much bigger than these giants. Why would we get worried about a few tall people? Something I've been saying all my life. Why in the world would we get so exercised about a few humans when, when we serve the God who created all things? And because of the ten, the nation of Israel turned and God declared that all of the adults that turned away at Kadesh Barnea would die in the next 40 years in the wilderness. And that was what precipitated Moses' words that we are but dust and you say to us, return to dust. Because that was a generation that suffered the consequences of their lack of trust in who God was, is. And he saw God sweep a generation away. And Moses himself will not be able allowed to enter the promised land because of his own disappointment. So verses 7 and following, he continues on the judgment of God. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our, our secret sins in the light of your presence. More often than not, by the way, our outside visual sins are preceded by secret sins in our heart. Our, our 
affections turn away from the Lord and all that He values, and it's because our affections have turned away that then our actions begin to reflect where our hearts are. But Moses warns that God even sees our secret sins. All our days pass away under your wrath. Remember verse 2, God is everlasting. Notice the emphasis on, on the moment of human existence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our year, years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. We disappear. We last so briefly. Unless you think that Moses is particularly pessimistic, remember that Jesus himself said, Matthew 6, 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow worry about self. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Life on earth is trouble. It is a reality that because of our own frailty and the frailty of all those around us, we live in a troubled world. We in America have been so remarkably blessed that, with that, and we have been taught that we humans are good so that we are surprised by difficulty. But, but Moses wouldn't have been surprised by difficulty. Scripture is not surprised by difficulty, and quite frankly, most older saints especially those who went through the Depression, World War II, and other difficulties are surprised at how surprised we are because they understand just how hard life can be. They understand that life should be lived with gratitude for the days that God gives us because we do not know what tomorrow will hold. Verse 11, Moses it's a crescendo. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. And you, you might ask the question, why is, is so much emphasis on this judgment from God? Don't we serve a loving God? Well, remember, he, he has established in verses 1 and 2 the greatness and the power and the love and goodness of God as our safe place. But now he's turned to that reality of Genesis 3 where because humanity rebelled against God's perfect will, we live in the judgment of that curse that, that lets us live in the consequences of that sin. That because we chose not God's perfect way, we live our lives in the reality of a broken world. In fact, in verse 12, he, he concludes this section and says, So teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In the midst of all this heartache, Lord, use it to teach us how to view our lives the right way. Teach us how to live in expectation of what you give us so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Notice the humility of verse 12. The, the sooner we gain an appropriate understanding of life and creation and the character of God, the more quickly we 
fall figuratively or literally on our knees before God in our humility before Him. The more we realize how desperately we need Him and how much we depend on Him. So that the prayer, O oh Lord, teach us to live, number our days, to live our lives well, to understand our days in the context of this reality so that we can live with a heart of wisdom. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul has a similar sentiment. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. In light of the evil of our days, learn to live in accordance with the wisdom of God. Learn to live in dependence on Him with humility and submission to His perfect will because since Adam, we have tried our way and it has not gone well, right? So he, he begins this psalm with a statement of our security that can be found in God as our safe place, and then he turns in verses 3 through 12 with a statement of the discipline of God because of the brokenness of humanity. But fortunately, he doesn't end there. In verses 13 through 17, he turns to the salvation that we can have from God. Read with me. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Uh, most of us have had moments in our lives, maybe many times in our lives, when we've said, Lord, let up a little, please. Step into our lives by your grace and, and relieve us from the stress of where we live. Acknowledging that we may have brought it on to ourselves, but yet hoping that as a parent intercedes for a child, God will intercede for us. Paul, Moses prays the same kind of prayer here. Satisfy us in the morning, what? With your unfailing love, your chesed love, your covenantal love, your promised love, your love that is rooted not in our worthiness but in your commitment to us. Lord, respond to us not because we are anything but because you are loving and kind so that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. So interrupt this difficult time in our lives with your love that our only natural response is to sing with joy because of the way you have intervened. Make us glad. What a great phrase. Have you ever prayed that to God? Make us glad, Lord. Make us glad. In spite of the heartache and difficulties in which we live, Lord, I look to you to make me glad. And he go, even goes specifically, as for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. Lord, we went through 40 years in the wilderness, 400 years in Egypt. Make us glad for as many years as you allowed us to have heartache through our own sin. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. May you intervene in our lives in such a way that people cannot help but see 
your loving care and your compassion and your power. Do it in such a way that you use our little lives as a demonstration of who you are. Make us glad so that we naturally sing in praise of who you are because you intervened when we were in difficulty and we just sung out loud. Make us glad. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Bless what we do. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's fascinating that he ends with our labor, our work. Lord, demonstrate your love by bringing power and effectiveness to the work of our hands. Intervene in our jobs so that we're effective in, in declaring who you are and serving you. And I, I believe this applies literally to our occupations. Uh, this is, and, and whether it's we're a teacher or a carpenter or a plumber or a politician or even a pastor, use, use our frail labors and establish them. And interesting, there's a contrast here. Notice that he's made the point that we are passing away, that we will be gone in the day, and yet he turns and says, Lord, not only establish us, but establish our work so that it becomes a testimony to you in the years to come. Take our lame efforts and use them according to your perfect plan for humanity. See, oftentimes we think that our secular work, our, our, our work that we do 40, 60, 80, 100 hours a week, it, unless we're in vocational ministry, unless we're a pastor or something, that it has no value to God. But that's not biblically true. Here, even Moses speaks, I believe, of the reality that when we do what we do in service of God, when we do it as a testimony to Him, that He will take what we do and establish it and make it have an impact in their society because it is redemptive. What we do is redemptive when it's done to the glory of God. When we, as followers of Christ, do our work to honor Him, God somehow supernaturally turns that labor into eternal goodness because it's done to the glory of God. It's not the value of our work as much as the one for whom it's done that makes it valuable. And, and even though we are but passing and we are broken, God uses us to bring redemption into a broken world. Of course, the redemption is ultimately demonstrated and accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of humanity and His resurrection from the dead as demonstrated and described in the Gospels and affirmed in 1 Corinthians that, that His redemptive work is ultimately accomplished by Christ. But when we serve Him in honor of who He is with a heart of bringing glory to Him, He then establishes and puts favor upon that so that all of our lives have value. And that's ultimately 
what Moses is praying for is that in spite of our frailty, that God will somehow honor our efforts for him and make our lives have meaning. And that alone makes us glad. See, our, our, in, li- in spite of our frailty, our life isn't meaningless. In spite of our sinfulness in Christ, our life is not empty. The psalmist would ask the question, does anything matter in light of this? And then affirm with confidence, absolutely. Because God can establish what we do. Because when it's done for him, it's redemptive. And, and so that when we pray in the midst of hurt and heartache and a feeling of emptiness, Moses would say, but we can find a safe place in God. And we can find redemption of our lives in God's will, first as perfectly demonstrated by Christ's death and resurrection, and then as lived out as Christians serving Him. I've done some funeral services for people who refuse to accept Christ, who had the choice and who heard the gospel, but for whatever reason, chose not to submit to that message. And I I will tell you that few things are as empty as a service for someone who has no hope. That as we stand over a grave and, and say goodbye to the remains and realize that There is no hope of eternity, no hope of meaning in this life, and that in just a few years that life will be forgotten. It is an incredible reminder of what we have in Christ. And that is because we have united ourselves to the God of creation and fixed our hope in Him and even in our brokenness, leaned into depending on Him and living our lives in submission and hope in Him, then He can establish our work that will extend beyond us and we can be confident of an eternity with Him. And I know of nothing else that makes us that glad. Please pray with me as we prepare for more worship. Father, we confess that life can be stunningly depressive, that the reality of our frailty and our weakness and our brokenness and the brokenness of our world around us can steal joy and make life seem hopeless and meaningful. But with Moses, we affirm that while we in ourselves are broken and frail and but a vapor, you are eternal and powerful and creator. And you can take the efforts of your children and establish them for all eternity. 
So today, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling and cry out that you'll make us glad. Pray for those who are struggling with a lack of hope and cry out, make us glad. I pray for those whose life, by virtue of 80 years, is growing short and cry out, Lord, make us glad. Help us to find our gladness in you. And it's in Jesus' perfect name we pray. Amen.